When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and my good friend, Danny Abdeljabar. What's going on, brother? Chilling, man, as per usual. Hey, uh, you know, I gotta say, you've really come a long way, Henry. How so? Well, uh, it only took you a few years, but I really think you're nailing the pronunciation of my last name. Good job. So it only took me, what, eight years? (laughs) Something like that, yeah. How long have we known each other? For eight, nine years? I feel like it, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. I think we met in 2014. Well, it's a hard name to pronounce. Yeah, I mean, to give you a pass, you've only had to say my last name consistently throughout the time that we've been doing the show, which is almost four years, I feel like, right? We're coming up on four. Well, Danny Abdel, Abdel- Jabbar, I can't pronounce really anything. I have horrible <laughs> that's, pronunciation that's skills. True. And um, the fact that I get close should be, uh, I think it should be recognized. Yeah, you get points in my book. You know, you know what's funny, though? I, I know that Abdeljabar is hard to pronounce, but since moving to Puerto Rico, I've come across some pretty funny situations where people have no idea what I'm saying when I say my first name, Danny. You know, like at, like at a restaurant when you put your name down on the list or definitely over the phone, like anytime I call like a utility company or something like that. They usually hear like Denny, like D-E-N-N-Y, or like Denise. Denny, party of five, Denny. D- Denise, Denise. <laughs> Why is Danny so hard to... I'm not really sure what's going on, you know, because Danny isn't an uncommon name, even in Puerto Rico. And I, maybe it's the uh, the American A, Annie, sound that I'm giving them. Maybe that's getting them. They usually know what I'm saying when I say Daniel, uh, but they just, they, I don't know, they don't get Danny for some reason. As a side note, I do kind of dig how they pronounce Abdeljabar. They say Abdelhabar with like an H sound, and I think it's got a nice ring to it, but... As silly as all of this is, I, I'm not, like, upset about it. I'm like, you know, Puerto Ricans pronounce my name however they can pronounce their name. It's Spanish is their primary language. And, you know, the sounds that I'm making when I say my name aren't just commonly used in Spanish. There's no harm in it. And it's just kind of a quirk of language, you know? Ab- Abdel Habar. <laughs> you should just go by Abdel Habar. Abdel Habar. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, speaking of language courts, let's, let's just jump right into the show. Um, did you hear uh, that Turkey changed their name recently? Turkey changed their name. Um, I did not actually hear that. Yeah, they changed their name. It's now Turkiya, or at least I think I'm saying it right. It's spelled T-U with the umlaut, you know, those two little dots on the top, R-K-I-Y-E. And I actually had to Google how to make that little U symbol on my keyboard. Um, pro tip on a Mac, if you hold Option, then type a U. That'll make the little dots, and then you can type any vowel, and it'll have the little dots on top. But anyway, we're, we're going to be talking about Turkey today. 
And in doing research uh, on Turkey, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole for their name change. So I was hoping we could start with something fun before we get all geopolitical. That sound cool for you? Yeah. So why did they decide to change their name? Well, there is a state-sponsored answer, which, spoiler alert, I think is pretty silly. Uh, But also there's a political and maybe even some more nefarious reasons that I think play a part into it. More on that part later, though. Also, heads up, I'm not going to be calling them Turkiya, except for when it's necessary. Um, So here's what uh, the decree from Turkey's President Erdogan said. He said, The phrase Turkiya represents and expresses the culture, civilization, and values of the Turkish nation in the best way. Sounds a little vague, huh? Now, I'm not Turkish, and I'm not an expert on Turkish culture, civilization, culture, or values. So, you know, that statement, I'll just give it the benefit of the doubt. Maybe Turkiya is a better expression of those things. But what I am pretty good at is Googling. So I did a bit of that, and here's what I learned. So Turkey was originally called Turkiya. Uh, after its founding in 1923, uh, its official name was, and I'm going to butcher this, Turkiya Cumhuriyeti, or the Republic of Turkey. Uh, the name refers to, obviously, the Turkish people, um, and it's just a term that's been used to refer to people who live in that region since at least the Middle Ages. And their founding president, Mustafa Kemal, Kermal, uh, he was later given like an honorific surname, uh, Ataturk, That's the guy that you probably know about, um, which describes him as basically like the father of the Turks. But pretty much immediately, as with most country names, um, other countries started referring to it by a name that means Turkey in their native languages, like, for example, Turkai in German, or I'm going to say this wrong, Turkui, Turki, but it's spelled T-U-R-Q-U-I-E, and that's the French way to do it. And of course, obviously, it's anglicized in, as Turkey, like we know it in English. And since English is a dominant world language, um, Turkey refers to itself as Turkey in English, and they refer to themselves as Turkiya in native, in Turkish. Um, it's been like that since pretty much they started. And this is totally normal. Plenty of countries' names get anglicized or made English. It's just a language thing. Um, You know, some examples of country names that get anglicized, just to give you some context, um, are, uh, you know, sometimes they just stay the same, like the exact same way. They just pronounce it slightly different. So like France is also spelled France in French. France. (laughs) It's just pronounced France or something weird like that. France. (laughs) Oh, France uh, sounds so much better. I'm from France. I'm from France. Yeah, exactly. But oh. it's spelled exactly the same way. So no no confusion there. Um, sometimes it's just a small spelling change. Like Brazil, for example, is Brasil with an S instead of a Z. Um, sometimes it's a completely different name, right? So good one is Germany, right? We call it Germany. They call themselves Deutschland, uh, which is totally different. Uh, in researching this, I found one really crazy one, Albania. You know what Albania's name is in, in their language? It's something it's, with like an S and an H, right? Yeah, it's weird. It's, sh- I'm going to fuck this up. <laughs> I listened to it before I did the show too. Uh, Shkapiria. Shkapiria, something like that. It's spelled S-H-Q-I-P-E with the two dots on top, R-I-A. Shkapiria, which it's an epic pain in the ass to pronounce if you're not, 
you know, if you're an English speaker and you haven't heard it first. So I probably butchered it. <laughs> um, that's why we call them Albania, because there's no way that we're saying that. You know what I, you know what I do to, the, to make this an easier process? I just call, the, the American way is just calling every single Latin American country or Spanish-speaking country Mexico. So including Spain, <laughs> just call it Mexico. So what do we call so Albania? Someone's they're, from, not, they're not Latin American. So Puerto Rico is Mexico. <laughs> and um, every, every European country just called France. Oh, he's from France. Oh, you're from East France? Yeah, I got it. You're from France. <laughs> um, so well, France, right. Mexico, and China. <laughs> China well, are the it. only three countries outside and the of the US. US. Right. Mm-hmm. All right, so some countries have multiple country names for themselves, right? Like their own country name, because those countries have multiple native languages. But in English, we only assign one name to them. So India is a super great example of it. They have like 15 of these. So they have two... Uh, words for uh, India in one language, but different scripts. It's called Bharat, B-H-R-O with something on top, T. Uh, they have six different versions of the word Bharat, which is B-H-A with a line over it, R-A-T. Just, of course, different scripts. They have six of them. Um, two Bharatams. I'm going to stop spelling these. One Bharaboroto. One Bharata. One Bharata, but just missing an H. Um, a one longer one called Bharata Desem, Bharata Desam, something like that. And of course, India, right? Because they also speak English. So they have a shit ton, right? But we only call them India because that's how you say it in English. Uh, and then there's countries like Czechia, good old Czechia. So Czechia, which is pronounced Czechia, but it looks like it should be pronounced Chechia, but you don't pronounce it that way because if you did, you could confuse it with Chechnya, which is a totally different country. So the anglicized version of Czechia is literally Czechia, Um, but what they call themselves is Chesko, which is C with a thing on top, E-S-K-O. It's confusing. They have, it's weird. So they changed their name from Czech Republic. You might probably recognize them by that name um, to the shorter Czechia in April of last year because they thought it would be easier and also because plenty of countries, uh, like they basically dropped the longer version, like the Republic of or the Federation or the Kingdom of parts and just go with the short version. So Czechia would be the short version of the Czech Republic. Uh, And 30 years before that, they declared themselves independent from Czechos- from Slovakia when they split up, and then it was called Czechoslovakia, and that was in 1993. Throughout this, like, I don't know, 30-year history, they've been having some trouble getting other people to adopt their new names. Um, people legit just started getting used to saying Czech Republic when they changed it to Czechia, Czechia. And before that, people were still calling it Czechoslovakia, even though they had split from Slovakia. And before that, they were calling it Bohemia, which only really refers to a region of Czechoslovakia. And they were also having trouble pronouncing Czechoslovakia. So the funniest part about Czechia, Czechia, is that I'm even, I'm even getting it wrong. The funniest part about Czechia is that their own embassy in the U.S. still calls it the Czech Republic, even though they changed it to Czechia, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Anyway, we're getting off the rails here. Coming back to Turkey they're most likely going to have trouble with foreign nations adopting a new name if history teaches us anything about Czechia. 
So, but you you said that there were other reasons why they changed their name. Um, I mean, is it because it was being confused with Turkey the Bird? Kind of, yeah. Um, one uh, one recent article from a state broadcaster, TRT World, they noted in a, in their article that Turkey um, it basically yields some confusion when you Google it. So they wrote, "Type Turkey into Google, and you will get a muddled set of images, articles." and dictionary definitions that conflate the country with Maligris. I've never heard that word before. Otherwise known as Turkey, a large bird native to North America, which is famous for being served on Christmas menus or Thanksgiving dinners. Flip through the Cambridge Dictionary, and Turkey is defined as something that fails badly or a stupid or silly person. Try it yourself, dude. I actually Googled Turkey on multiple devices, and on multiple browsers and in incognito mode. And while you do certainly see some pictures of turkeys, the first result is a Wikipedia article about the country, and the first picture is a Turkish flag. So I really don't know what they're on about in this respect. So that led me down a different rabbit hole, and I got curious, why why do we call turkeys turkey? Uh, So I got curious about the bird and researched it a bit, and I've got some information about that. Apparently, Turkey the bird was named after Turkey the country. Um, In the 1500s, Turkish merchants brought the bird over from the U.S. to Great Britain. You know, they don't have turkeys there, and since the Turks brought them over, they just started calling them turkey cocks, which I think is a silly word, turkey cock. Um, But the British weren't, like, precise about naming products that arrived from Turkey at all. Uh, For example, Persian carpets were called turkey rugs, Indian flour was called turkey flour. Hungarian carpet bags, I don't even know what this is, but a Hungarian uh, carpet bag is called a turkey bag. Um, So basically, if any product came to London from a Turkish merchant, the Londoners just named it turkey something. And that's what happened to the bird. So interestingly enough, I found out that most countries don't call turkeys turkey. So in, you know, Arabia, they call the bird Deek Hindi, which means Indian rooster. In Russia, <laughs> it's Indyushka, which is a bird of India. In Poland, it's, Jesus, Inichka, Inichka, something like that. Uh, it, it means a bird from India, right? So... Kind of funny, because other people call turkeys India, <laughs> and we call turkeys Turkey. So basically, here's the deal. Erdogan is so insecure about showing up in Google searches next to a picture of a funny-looking bird that he made it a priority to not only change the name of his country, but to make every other country call it that too, even in their own native languages. And this is the great part. Hypocritically, the Turkish word for turkey is Hindi <laughs> or India. Erdogan's totally cool with that. So it got me thinking, and stay with me for a moment here. I want to paint a ridiculous scenario that could be fueled by Turkey's name change logic. Like if we just apply this universally. All right, so here's how it starts. Obviously, Turkey changes their name to Turkey for the bird reason. Then India changes their name too because they, like Turkey, also don't want to be associated with that bird. So for the lulls, they end up picking the longest version of their name, Bharatadesam, however it's called. Peru jumps on that bandwagon for the same reason as the bird reason, and 
you know, changes their name to Piru, P-I-R-U-W, which is the indigenous spelling, because Peru in Portuguese also means turkey, the bird. Then Germany comes out of left field and decides everybody should call it Deutschland because Germany or Germania is a name that was given to it by the Romans and they almost word for word echoes Erdogan Sakri. And they say, the phrase Deutschland represents and expresses the culture, civilization, and values of the Deutsche Volk in the best way. Then Central African Republic, they see Turkey's single umlaut and they triple it. Plus they add three new symbols with its native Sango name, Jesus, Kudurusesi, TB Africa. I just butchered that. I'm sorry. There's a ton of random symbols in it, but Google it. <laughs> uh, then Chechia or Czechia tries to change its name to a relatively easier looking native name, Chesco. But everyone ignores them because this is the third time that they've changed their name in like 30 years and everyone's sick of their shit. Then Russia and other countries using Cyrillic script, they want to go ahead and switch to their special symbols because everybody else is using special symbols. Then Arabic countries start switching their spelling to their script because now they feel left out. And then Asian countries start switching to their script because they also feel left out. Finally, the Nordic countries switch to, to runes for some reason because why the fuck not at this point? And, you know, at the end of it, we have to stop doing bro history because Henry can't pronounce any country names anymore. And that's my scenario. <laughs> so you don't think they should be able to change their name is what you're nah. saying? <laughs> That's, that's not exactly what I'm saying. I'm not opposed to countries changing their names. I don't really care what a nation wants to call themselves. Uh, you know, it happens sometimes, and it's honestly not a big deal. I think what gets me about Turkiya is their insistence on making you say it that way, regardless of what language you say it in. So compare this to the Netherlands, uh, who recently dropped... Holland from its name back in 2020, which I'm glad for because I was never clear on which of those names represents that company, uh, company, country. I was, um, that's something I've always been confused about. It's like, do, is it Holland or the Netherlands or which one's the region? Right, which exactly. Which the actual like, country name? Yeah, exactly. They, they cleared it up. It's the Netherlands. I'm from Holland. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Faja, I mean, Faja, Faja, can you hear me? <laughs> Dutch is a fun language. It's hilarious. Smoking a pancake. Um, so they no longer use Holland anymore. That's not a thing. Except it still is a thing because I googled how to say the Netherlands in other languages, and there's at least 20 countries that refer to the Netherlands as Holland or some localized version of the word Holland. And honestly, I don't give, I don't think the Netherlands gives a shit what other people call them in their own languages. But Turkey really does. For them, it's not just about how they call themselves, it's how they want other countries to call them, irrespective of their native language. This new name is actually intended to take the place of not only Turkey, so the English word, but also other names used internationally, such as Turkai, German, and Turqui, French. And then, you know, so that, that just doesn't sit with me well. And it's like, who the hell cares? Like, why, should, why do you care what other countries call you? It's their languages, like, whatever. Um, but you, you really have to consider, just outside of like the, the weird language parts, you have to consider what the costs of this change are. Now, I can't find any specifics on what this is going to cost, but you have to think to yourself, they're going to change the names on all the buildings. They're trying to enforce manufacturers to print made in Turkey on all the stuff they make. 
they changed their website, which isn't such a big deal, but they are doing a tourism media blitz right now. You know, they probably spent a lot of money on that, trying to get people traveling to Turkey to call it Turkia. And all of this, plus a whole lot more, has to cost something, right? Like, how the hell is this a priority when Turkey's economy is tanking? Well, Turkia sounds kind of like a Mexican dessert. <laughs> a Mexican dessert. Can I have a Turkia with that, please? Um, but yeah, I mean, Turkey or Erdogan, and you know, they they really do care what other countries think of them, and I think that has to do with a lot of their policies, especially a lot of their their foreign policy of late. But their economy, yeah, correctly, they you know, Turkey Turkey's inflation in May rose to nearly seventy five percent, so it makes it the sixth highest in the world. Um, according to the Wall Street Journal, and, and I have this article, I have this article up. Um, independent economists say that the inflation rate is likely far higher. ENA Group, a project organized by economists and accountants, says Turkey's true inflation rate is closer to 160 percent. Jeez. Turkey's government has moved to crack down on the ability of independent economists to publish inflation figures and make comments officials' view is harmful to Turkey's currency. Last year, the government statistics agency sued ENA Group over its inflation calculations. So, you know, inflation is a recurring theme. Global inflation is around is up about 8.5%. So, you know, the, the uh, combination of, of everything. So money printing uh, during the COVID-19. I mean, money printing over the past decades, but with the combination of of uh of covid lockdowns uh which with the combination of the war in ukraine um also with the combination of china's uh zero uh covid policy right now is is uh you know drastically increasing inflation worldwide but er, but turkey is is uh i think probably has the most unique and extreme case uh, especially out of g20 countries right now they have the most inflation out of any g20 uh g20 country um, last year, Erdogan, he forced the central bank to cut rates four consecutive times. So, you know, this led to a complete collapse of the lira. And uh, it has more than, t- I think it lost around 20% of its value since the start of this year. Domestic producer prices are up 132%. So year on year. And, you know, what that does, it bleeds down to the consumer prices. So the, the state gas company in Turkey, you know, they've, they have increased their prices by 30%. Um, electricity companies, they've increased their prices by 15%. And then um, also, according to this Wall Street Journal article, the central bank has tried to lean against the fall by spending the dwindling dollars at its disposal to intervene in currency markets to prop up the lira. Central bank data reviewed by the Wall Street Journal show that the bank likely sold $24 billion in foreign currency from January to March of this year. That has depleted Turkey's already dwindling coffers. Economists estimate that the central bank has $60 billion more in foreign currency liabilities than assets, meaning it has negative net negative reserves. It has borrowed dollars heavily from Turkey's commercial banks, raising concerns about a shortage of dollars in the banking system. The central bank has resisted calls from the economists and the business community to raise interest rates as a way to attract money back into the lira. 
Mr. Erdogan recently called for the bank to cut rates again. And the bank will be meeting later this month. Yeah, I mean, that that sucks. <laughs> that, that kind of further underscores my point. Why the hell are they prioritizing changing their names? It just seems like a like a stupid priority. But there could be a darker reason for the name change. Okay, so conspiracy theory first, supporting evidence later. Cool with you? I mean, this never stopped us before, right? I mean, usually <laughs> it's just conspiracy theory without any supporting evidence, so go for it. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, so the name change, that's just a rebrand in anticipation of Erdogan's impending forceful expansion of Turkey. I think he wants to make an Ottoman Empire 2.0, or at least, I don't know, Ottoman Empire light. So to start, he's going to invade Syria soon and take that land. Also, definitely murder a bunch of Kurds in the process. All right. So why do you think there's going to be an Ottoman Empire 2.0? Okay. So I got a lot of this info from an article that was written back in 2016 on foreignpolicy.com. It's titled, Turkey's New Maps Are Reclaiming the Ottoman Empire. But I just kind of tied it together with some new information to come to this theory. All right. So at this time, back in 2016, Turkey and Iraq were having a bit of a conflict over Turkey's role in liberating Mosul from ISIS. On two separate occasions, President Erdogan criticized the Treaty of Lausanne, which basically established the borders of modern Turkey. Uh, because according to Erdogan, it left the country too small. In particular, Erdogan was concerned with Turkish minorities that were living outside of Turkey's borders um, in Iraq as well as other places. He also cited Turkey's historic claims to the uh, Iraqi city of Mosul, uh, near which uh, Turkey has a small military base. Now, Turkey hasn't gone through with any of the plans that they may have had back then to take back parts of Iraq, including Mosul. But when I read that, it started sounding a little bit familiar. So one powerful country with a strongman president is mad about some historic border changes and has a nationalist hard-on to restore his country's former glory. So he looks at a neighboring country, and he's concerned with the safety of their ethnic minorities in that country because apparently far-right-wing crazies are threatening them. And he also cites historic ownership of the land to justify stepping into and defending them and ultimately taking it back. You picking up what I'm putting down here, Henry? <laughs> well, I guess in the case of... of Turkey, though, you know, the, the Kurds, they, they consider themselves, um, you know, I think Bookshinist or Bookshinist or whatever the term. They're some type of offshoot of, of Marxist. So um, they're, they're left-wingers, hard left-wingers. That's why you had these, these um, kind of strange left-wing groups from the U.S. travel over to Rojava and, and uh, attempt to fight with them. Actually, a a couple of them were killed in an airstrike by Turkey in a place called Afrin. Um, I think sure, I was referring to the in to ISIS. What's that? 
I was referring to ISIS. Um, oh, I thought the right wing crazies. Oh, but, I thought you were yeah. talking about the Kurds and trying to make a comparison to Russia. I think I just completely missed the point that you were trying to make. No, I mean, the, the Russian part is a good comparison. I was just, when I talked about right-wing crazies, I was mostly talking about ISIS because oh. I was relating it back to 2016. But still, I mean, you could just take out the right-wing part and call them crazies, right? Or extremists or whatever you want to call them, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the parallels are pretty clear to me, you know? It sounds like Russia's, quote, reasons for invading Ukraine. So maybe... Just maybe, Turkey sees what Russia is doing now and decides to play the same game by inviting, um, invading Syria and, I don't know, maybe Iraq too. Who knows? This part about invading Syria, by the way, isn't a conspiracy theory, though. It's like an, it's an open plan. In early June, Erdogan said in a meeting of his parliament that Turkey will target Kurdish armed groups in two northern Syri Syrian cities in an upcoming military operation. So he said, and I quote, we are taking another step in establishing a 30 kilometer security zone along our southern border. We will clean up Tal Rifat and Manbij of terrorists. Then he also said that the Turkish forces would proceed to step by step into other regions. So it's not just Tal Rifat and Manbij. It's also maybe some other regions as well. And, you know, capturing those territories would allow Erdogan to expand and deepen this, like, safe zone that he's talking about along the border where Turkey, um, and he actually hopes to resettle uh, a bunch of Syrian refugees, but I think that's more of just the, uh, the PR reason, right? He definitely has, I think... I think it's within the realm of possibility that there are some ulterior motives for wanting to create additional um, Turkish-controlled territory. Um, but back to that conspiracy theory, though, in 2016, during the height of the Turkish nationalism that was going on at the time, when they were really engaging with ISIS in Syria uh, and in the Syrian civil war, there were state TV outlets that were putting out maps of Turkey which were inaccurate. They were, like, way bigger than Turkey actually is. And that's what the content of this uh, foreign policy article was talking about. It was saying that they were flirting with the idea of a bigger Turkey that basically swallowed up northern Syria, including Aleppo, took parts of Iraq, including Mosul, and even took some parts of Greece. And this is their state TV was putting these maps out. Right? So it was very public. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. I mean, as far as plausibility goes, they have a backstory, right? In particular, they're not really... I mean, they're still kind of dealing with ISIS, but not, that's not really the big deal. Right now, it's the YPG right? The, the Kurds. So they're calling them terrorists. And, you know, allegedly they're threatening them. They're talking again about, you know, uh, Turkish minorities outside of Turkey that are in danger. Uh, they're obviously talking about the, the PR move of moving Syrians back into Syria, which, you know, frankly, might be a good, good move for them because they are reeling right now in the economy and they probably can't afford to, to take on those refugees. But in order to do this, they have to go ahead and start invading. Sounds like they're spelling it out pretty clearly. I don't want to be alarmist, but, you know, wasn't exactly convinced that the Russians were going to invade Ukraine until they did. <laughs> well, I think you're right. I think I think um, most likely Turkey is going to invade Syria. Um, I think the writing is kind of on the wall, and most people believe that at this point. So I don't think you're being alarmist at all when you say that they're going to invade northern Syria. When it comes down to it, Erdogan is in an economic crisis. So he needs to show that he's a strong leader and that he's willing to preserve uh, you know, Turkey's international integrity. And you know, that's where you were getting at with you know, their name change and why it's so important to them. The sovereignty, and I think that's a big theme of world politics right now, is everyone is very concerned about their sovereignty. So not just mm -hmm. Turkey, but India is very concerned about their sovereignty. If you see some of the speeches that their foreign ministers have said about saying, hey, the world's problems aren't, uh, or Europe's problem is not the world's problems, and uh, you know, the world's problems never seem to be European problems. You know, something mm -hmm. along those lines. I'm paraphrasing in a bit. But, you know, in, India is very concerned about its sovereignty and, and not being forced into uh, one camp or the other. Uh, they've been very adamant about, you know, following their own national interest. And then um, sovereignty with, with Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, there's kind of arguments, but, you know, Ukraine wants to keep its sovereignty. Um, what little sovereignty it really actually has when, you know, most of Ukraine right now is being controlled by the West. Um, but... I think this is a sign of a, of a country that, or, or of a state that is very concerned about not only what its domestic uh, population 
sees it as, but also it's, you know, potential foreign adversaries slash, you know, the international community. They, they want to make it clear that, hey, we're Turkey, we're an independent state, you know, we have the ability to impact change uh, even across our border when it, comes to, when it comes to the Middle East. We have historical connections with the Middle East. We once had this great empire called the Ottoman Empire, and uh, you know these these states used to be under our control, including you know the Balkans, parts of Greece, and in the middle, you know the surrounding Middle East and North African areas. Now, the best way to do this and and, and, to, and to appease the public is to target the Kurds. And that's a good way to, to bolster his support. I mean, to be honest, there is kind of a mixed community of of Kurds in Turkey where, you know, there's Kurdish business leaders and stuff like that. But, you know, there mm-hmm. are terror attacks in Turkey from, from sure. uh, Kurdish extremist groups. So it is, it is a rallying call, uh, um, you know, to, to, to bolster public support. Now, um, it, it all, it indicates, you know, not only to, to the West and, and the Turkish population, but also Russia, you know, this is a power play. Because Erdogan also never really gave up his wider ambitions in Syria. Um, And it was the Russians who were the ones who were preventing Turkey from, you know, ultimately carrying out its its regime change policy it had in Damascus. And now since the Russians are distracted in Ukraine, Erdogan is using this as an opportunity to further his, um, you know, his position in Syria. And not only really, not only take out the Kurds, but he also can play this against the Assad government into some type of political settlement, whether that be you know a regime change or 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 some type of favorable deal with Turkey. Right now, in in um, northwestern Syria, Idlib is still you know occupied by. Turkish-backed rebels is basically a, 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 a terror hive. It's the largest hive of, uh, of Salafist jihadists in the world all in one place, and, and Turkey kind of uses them as proxy armies. armies. Um, you can see them send them to uh, you know different places in the world when, when they have stakes in, just like they did in Azerbaijan. You know, there were, there were reports of Turkish-backed rebels from the Idlib province fighting on behalf of the Azerbaijani government against the, in the war in, 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 uh, uh, against Armenia over Novorna-Karbakh. And it's kind of funny because these are Sunni extremists fighting on the side of the Shias in Azerbaijan, uh, which is kind of further complicates the, the issue. But, um, you know, it, they're trying to further play their hand against, against the... Uh, Assad government right now and um, I think Assad also realizes that you know they'll never be Syria is never going to be secure without them uh, regaining the rest of the country and occupying northwest Syria will give Erdogan a lot of leverage over over um, <clears throat> Over the Syrians, um, along with the U.S. and Russia, because when you think about it, Turkey basically has everyone by the balls right now. Yeah, the I U.S. Really do. doesn't really the U.S. doesn't really have an appetite to confront Turkey. Like I don't think the Pentagon wants to start confronting Turkey over the Kurds or over over Syria or 
if you know Turkey goes against U.S. policy in Syria, I don't really think they want to deal with it. They have enough of a headache right now. They're basically, you know, they're they're engaged in a proxy war in Ukraine that they're losing, mm-hmm. which is basically <clears throat> why you know it's almost certain that they're losing. Um, right. They're dealing with Mid- China midterms and is, increased tensions. Midterms there. is coming up too. Midterms is coming here, coming up as well. But I think the Pentagon. I don't think that enough people care about Turkey or care in the United States care about Turkey or see it as something to bother with or, or there's no political advantage for mm-hmm. the United States or even a politician to take a tough line with Turkey right now. You're yeah. better off just sweeping it under the rug and and just, you know, not really addressing it. So I don't think the US has an appetite to complicate issues there. Uh, any more than they need to be. But the people who are really in a tough spot right now is that is the Russians when it comes to Turkey. Because Turkey, when you think about it, really does have Russia by the balls. And, you know, there's a couple of countries that, that probably have leverage over Russia right now. And I would say that the, the three countries that have uh, a unique amount of leverage over, over Russia are China, um, India, and, and, and Turkey. And the Russians, they have to work with Erdogan right now because they're relying on Erdogan to keep warships out of the Black Sea. So they're relying on him to close the straits and not allow NATO war streets to saturate the Black Sea. Um, they also need Erdogan to undermine NATO. So... Right now, uh, Turkey is, has pledged to vote against Sweden and Finland joining NATO. And their reasoning is because Sweden and Finland have pro-terrorist you know, uh, governments when they're talking about the Kurds. So there's, there's com- too much camaraderie with the Kurds in Sweden and Finland, and they have disputed about this prior in the past. Um, so, you know, they want for, they're putting Sweden and Finland in a position where they have to openly um, designate the Kurds as terrorist groups. So, <laughs> or at least the, Kur- the Kurdish separatist groups in, in Turkey and Syria um, as, terror- as terrorist groups, which they don't want to do at all. So they, they really do got them get uh, have them by the balls, and of course, there is the you know some of the the uh, the built the uh, you know weapons programs that Turkey wants to re-enter um, the F thirty five one being you know one of the ones that they've noted. So they want to re-enter the F thirty five. There, you see, Turkey's kind of in a u- unique position because um, you know. U.S. and Turkey, the only reason why, let's pull this back, the only reason why Turkey was allowed into NATO was because it was strategically important for the United States during the Cold War. In 1952, when they were first let into NATO, you know, the main reason is because they wanted to put missiles in Turkey and aim them right at Moscow. Right. That's why they were were allowed into NATO and um, had nothing to really do with, like, shared cultural values or things like that. I mean, Turkey's not even really part of Europe when you think about it. 
So they were let into well, NATO. Don't tell them that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, I mean, they used, I guess they used to occupy big parts of, of Europe, but, you know, their, their capital is in the Middle East. Yeah. So they're using this to... They're using this situation, the, the, you know, blocking Finland and Sweden to get concessions from the West, um, you know, wh- whether that be getting into weapons programs, um, concessions financially, uh, things like that. And honestly, I mean, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's a good strategy because of the leverage that they do have. Now, for Russia, this is more important because I don't think... Honestly, I think if Sweden and Finland, they ultimately join NATO, I don't think it's that big of a deal for the Russians. It's not going to, I think, change too much. I don't think the Russians are going to say, okay, well, now we need to invade Finland because, I mean, I don't think they care really at all about Sweden joining NATO. I mean, they're basically kind of in NATO already. But unless, like, Finland joins NATO and then they start amassing troops on the border of Finland, I don't think they're going to necessarily get be be that concerned they're more or less just kind of solidifying their fate as nuclear targets and if a nuclear war breaks out um but i don't sure, think yeah, that's their i don't think that's their course. number one concern what's <laughs> yeah. that i said yeah sure they the sweden and finland might be backing the wrong horse because if the u.s drags them into a nuclear war it just makes them into targets if they're also in nato i agree with yeah, that i don't i don't know why they would want to join NATO. It, I mean, it, it's it's more of like a political thing to kind of show their alignment with other European countries than anything. But that might I don't be it. think I mean, it's I think there's, smart. I think there's le- legitimate concern uh, for Sweden and Finland because you know, like a lot of the um, a lot of the analysis on on the existing Baltic state NATO members uh, and like what would happen if if Russia invades, like they're pretty bleak, you know, in terms of our immediate capacity to help them, you know, and to, to um, invoke Article 5 of the NATO Charter, which is collective defense, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of went back on that a few episodes ago when I talked about, like, multiple launch rocket systems and how amazing they are. But, like, generally speaking, that's like in, a, in an ideal situation. The Baltic state NATO members are kind of fucked a little bit if Russia really wanted to throw their muscle at them. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's at least... You know, Finland is right there, right? They border uh, with with um, Russia, and you know, it's it's in, entirely possible that they have legitimate concerns about Russia doing the same thing to them that is happening in Ukraine, um, but perhaps for different reasons. So I can see there being a reason why they would want to join to get some of that NATO backup. But you know, kind of like what you pointed out already. Sweet, definitely Sweden, but kind of Finland also are already basically NATO. They're like. NATO light, NATO affiliated, basically. I mean, a lot of their weapon systems are NATO compatible, you know, uh, and if they needed to, they can swap in, you know, and if they needed to have a snap decision, they could. And it's questionable whether or not, you know, the US or, or NATO, generally speaking, would support Sweden and Finland if Russia tried to fuck around and find out. But, you know, maybe that's the reason why they want to, you know, make it official. It, that's That's a possibility. But as far as like Russia is concerned, when you said that, you know, it's probably not a big deal, I mostly agree with you. The only thing that I disagree on is just the principle of Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Much in the same way that like 
the principle of Russia invading Ukraine gives us cause for concern for places like Sweden and Finland or other Baltic NATO states, you know, it, it for Russia, Sweden and, and Finland joining NATO is cause for concern for other, you know, um, European countries that border or are close to Russia joining NATO as well, like, I don't know, Georgia or uh, Moldova or something like that, you know? Um, so, you know, it's, it, there's, there's reasons, there's concerns. How, how important those concerns are is, you know, up for debate. But I, I think there are probably bigger reasons why, why this is a problem in general. Well, in, in, um, but look at the logic. So Ukraine was invaded because they were going to join NATO or right. not because that's, I don't think they were ever going to join NATO. I don't think that was ever really going to be a realistic thing that happened. I think it was just kind of a carrot that was thrown in front of the Ukrainians for kind of Machiavellian reasons. Um, however, you're going to make the same promise to Finland. Well, Ukraine was just invaded because they were going to join, to join NATO. So why would you want to go through the process of joining NATO if that meant that just another country was recently invaded because of that? Yeah. Like, you understand the logic? Like, you join, it's kind of like, you know, um, all right, if there's two gangs, let's just say the, the, the vice the lords, the <laughs> vice lords and the black disciples, right? Those are two rival gangs, right? I, I don't know the gang lines, but those are like the two, two of the biggest gangs in Chicago. If you're a vice lord, um, you know, you immediately become a target from the black disciples. Or you use Bloods and Crips, maybe that's yeah. I was about to say I don't main. really know those gangs very well. <laughs> those are those are the, some of the gangs in Chicago. Um, okay, which are which are I think are bigger than the Bloods and Crips at this point, but they. Um, but so if you are a Blood, you immediately become a target for the Crips. Sure. So being initiated into the Bloods mm -hmm. will make you fair game to be killed in a drive-by shooting by the Crips. So why would you want to join a gang in the first place? Yeah, they'll get your back if you're attacked, but why would you want to even put yourself in a position in a rival gang where you can possibly, which would ultimately uh, make your life more dangerous? So, so maybe this is like their Wouldn't you just want to not join the, any gang and stay neutral? <laughs> But people still, still join gangs. And and people still join gangs and it makes their lives more dangerous when people <laughs> join gangs because NATO is just a gang, man, right? And I think Ukraine getting invaded is like being jumped into the gang basically. <laughs> you being know, jumped into the gang, but at the same time it's putting them in a position where you know, they're fair game now. They're no longer civilians. Finland played a neutral game for a long time and look, Finland is it's one of the best living standards in the world. Isn't it like rated the happiest country in Finland? Something like that. Something Definitely like that. There. Yeah. They're like some of the, the, the happiest people live in Finland. And why would you want to kind of put yourself and involve yourself in, in geopolitical turmoil? But I don't know. You can't. It's, it's all. I, I don't know the exact reasoning or I can't speak to the exact reasoning. But I think it's mostly just financial and political. Um, but it makes, I think it would make their lives more dangerous going through the process. Ultimately, 
I don't think Russia would do anything except maybe, you know, just point missiles at Helsinki. But um, if they're not doing that already, but I think that's kind of the ultimate consequence. I don't think I don't think NATO would be so brass to like start amassing troops on the border of Finland. That would be crazy. If they started militarizing Finland, they just take the Finnish people and they um, and they start militarizing them. I mean, there is a precedent of Finnish, the Finns and, and uh, the Soviet Union going to war with each other. Yep. Which the was Finns ultimately, won. Which, which, <laughs> which, well, I mean, I think it depends on who you ask who won. I think Finnish people will say they won the war and then Russians will be like, no, the Soviets won the war. They had to concede territory. Um, I'm not an expert on that war and exactly what ter- territory was gained or lost, but I know it was like a very kind of embarrassing war for the Russians where they where they lost a lot of people that they didn't expect to lose. But uh, I know we have some Finnish people who listen to this show, so maybe they can tell me what they think. Um, but going back, what's really important to I think what's more important than than Turkey uh, keeping Finland and Sweden out of NATO I don't think they care at all about Sweden to be completely honest maybe for the symbolic reasons but Sweden and Russia haven't had you know a conflict in a very long time um, the Russians use Turkey to evade sanctions interesting so if you're a Russian and you want to travel abroad or if you're a Russian from, let's just say, the United States, and you want to go back into, if you want to go travel to Russia, you're not going through Europe. You're not taking a flight to London, and you're not flying from London to Moscow. You're not flying to Berlin and flying from Berlin to Moscow or St. Petersburg. You're not traveling from Europe to Russia. So in order to travel... You need to go to Turkey if you want to get if you want to leave the country. So you're going to Istanbul and then you're flying out there. So that's one big thing. Um, also, if you're a Russian company and you need to import consumer goods and whatnot or materials or um, you know anything that you know your industry needs, you need to import them from Turkey. You're not going to import them from Germany. Um, also, um, Erdogan, the reality is like it or not, Erdogan is probably in the best position to be a potential mediator to end the war in Ukraine, or at least to reestablish relations between Russia and the West. If Putin's thinking long-term and he's like, okay, you know, we're going to divide at this point, but... Long term, five years out, five year forecast. We want to, you know, eventually, you know, not have constant host- hostility. We would like to, you know, mend relations with the West and and have just a better security architecture. You know, the reason why we fought this war is because we wanted to kind of remake the the security architecture in Europe. So, if we want to have a fair mediator, we really can't trust the Americans, or we can't trust you know, basically any other European country, we need to go to Erdogan. He, he'll, you know, he might be the most neutral person. Like the 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 West won't accept China as a mediator. Um, so 
Erdogan is most likely would play that role or, or someone from the Turkish government would most likely play that role as a mediator between the East and, and, and West. Um, so I think there's that and, and the Russians realize that as well. So I think the Russians need Erdogan right where he is. And um, I think the Russians, and going back to Syria, the Russians are the reason why in large part where why the current Syrian government still exists, them intervening into the war. Um, I think the Russians are telling the Turks that, all right, you can't march on Damascus. You can't just march an army to Damascus, nor do I think that the Turks would want to deal with that because at this point, the Syrian army is a veteran army they're well trained, and if the Syrian army is, uh, you know, if they're forcing the Kurds and the Syrian and the Syrian government into some type of an alliance, it might be pretty. That be, it might be a, like a pretty bad war for Turkey. Um, so I don't think they're going to march over to Damascus or anything like that. But the Russians are probably saying, okay, we're going to give you some more space. So if you want to go and you know, occupy certain parts of, of northern of northern Syria, we'll, we'll give you that space. And if you want to go um, hunting Kurds, you know, go ahead and, and do that. Um, do you but think now they'll it's let kind them of, take uh, Aleppo? <laughs> I don't think they'd, no, I don't think they would let them take Aleppo, but I think that they would, um, you know, let them occupy the former American parts, occupied uh, areas in northern and northwestern or northeastern Syria, where like the oil and the agricultural industry is, I think they probably give them that type of room. Like I think they would let them uh, occupy the Rojava period, the region. Um, so now Assad is kind of forced into an alliance with the Kurds, and he's been Assad has been saying this for a while to the Kurds that why are you depending on the United States? Like they're just going to sell you out. And um, they've been like, no, 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 we're going to work. We've been working with the United States. They gave us weapons. You know, they helped us take Raqqa. You know, they've, they've been, you know, they've been good sponsors. But at the end of the day, I think the U.S. will not um, sacrifice any worse tensions with Turkey on, for the Kurds. So they're most likely going to be sold out, like, they are always sold out. Yeah. The Kurds are kind of like the, the Kurds are kind of like the Ukrainians, <laughs> very much so. Very very similar um, trajectories where they um, they're kind of used by other states to for their own purposes, and they're always gonna, they're they're sold out at the end. Like the Ukrainians in World War II were treated like that by the Nazis where they went in and the Nazis went in and said, hey, we'll be your partners in, in taking the, uh, and uh, kicking out the Russians and kicking out the Soviets. But then they were still uh, uh, Untermenschen, right? That's mm-hmm. the word? Untermenschen, Uter-men- yeah. Uter- they're still Untermenschen. Subhumans. They're still Untermenschen, so we'll teach them uh, just enough to be able to, I think Hitler said that they'll teach the Ukrainians just enough to be able to read the signs on the street. Um, but at the end of the day, they, you know, they were just going to use them. So 
I think that's it. I think that's that's uh, what's the current situation in in the Middle East with Turkey and in their uh, their newfound leverage there in dealing with the Russians and dealing with with the Syrians in in America. Um, they're kind of empowered by the Ukrainian the, the war in Ukraine uh, because they can offer things to both sides, and they're not like some liberal democracy they're not in a liberal democracy club biden you know he he called uh he openly called erdogan an autocrat which he is an autocrat i mean erdogan is a is a i don't know dictator light autocrat i mean they control the press they throw journalists in jails frequent jails they throw they they frequently throw uh opposition journalists in jail um i mean there's conspiracies or theories and and i kind of believe this that the coup in 2016 was was actually a uh um you know a machination from erdogan himself uh to kind of increase government his own government power and i I forgot about that (laughs) so there's i mean it's fair to call him that and most likely Erdogan isn't going anywhere. I think he has a firm grip of power there. Well, you know, um, elections are coming up next year for them. 2023 yeah. is election year for Turkey. And with the economy the way that it is, you know, reeling after COVID-19, uh, being put in this kind of weird but but advantageous leverage position with NATO, you know, they got to find a way to spin it. Uh, kind of coming back to the name change, I feel like that's an, another way to kind of spur on some nationalism i don't think they're going to get like 2016 levels of nationalism when they were like in the heat of the syrian civil war but um if if erdogan can kind of rekindle some of that um maybe by just attacking some ypg people um then he might be in a good spot for re-election yeah and i think that for like average like prices are going up for turkish citizens but i read that like the food prices aren't going up too much um, cause they have their own like agricultural and, and they do make things in Turkey. So, right. um, I think that prices won't go like so crazy for at least like those essential items that really cause people to make government changes. So, um, I think that they're going, I think Erdogan is, is relatively safe to, to, uh, kind of gr- have it to, to firm his, to keep his um, hand on the grips of power. I mean, he's a very skilled political operator. I mean, yeah. who the hell else? I mean, despite all his faults, you know, he he understands how to combine. The, he he understands nationalism and going back to sovereignty and his and his insistence that people uh, change the name to Turkey or or, or call Turkey Turkia. Um, I kind of symbolizes. Um, his uh overall policy and and uh um and and kind of infusing um the two types of nationalism in in turkey and i think you know when i say two nationalisms that's that's the kind of the turkish speaking nationalism like the ethnic the ethnic nationalism with the sunni with the sunni nationalism that's right um i think he's he's combined that um you know, skillfully as a as a as a country of a of a nation state. Um, so even so, despite his you know dumb 
economic policy and and I think a lot of it was I'm not sure I've read that a lot of it was because of the 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 central bank chairman that he appointed um, came up with a lot of these ideas about the uh, interest rates about um about um the the loose monetary policy um, despite all that I, I think that he's going to um, kind of remain there for for the long for the long being for the long time but who knows maybe not i mean things change you can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the ign daily update podcast all you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from ign on the world of video games movies and television with news previews and reviews You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done. Especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, the, what got me earlier is when you said that, you know, state gas companies increased their prices by 30% and electricity companies increased by 15%. Well, well, it's probably true that the food prices are still relatively flat. You know, those two things are kind of essential. And I wonder for how much longer are, you know, folks in Turkey going to put up with that and kind of put nationalism in front of their, you know, pocketbooks when it, when it comes to stuff like gas and electricity. Uh, I mean, if you look at the midterms now, a giant, you know, issue that uh, the the right is is currently bashing over um, Biden's head is just the price of gas, right? Uh, I just recently bought a car, and uh, it wasn't actually too expensive to fill it up, or at least for my standards. It, you know, we don't really drive around too much, so it doesn't doesn't hurt so bad. But you know, it did seem kind of expensive, you know. Uh, and I can see people who commute to work every single day having to do that more frequently than I do. That'd be an epic pain in the ass, and it might make me consider changing my vote if I believed that you know the current person in, in power was at least tacitly responsible for it. So I wonder how those gas prices in Turkey reflect on you know the political climate there. Does you know where, where's the line? You know, like how how expensive is too expensive <laughs> for? Um, for the Turkish people. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we'll we'll see what happens with, with the next election, but don't underestimate the power of nationalism. <laughs> yeah. Is what I'm it's pretty strong. And I think and I think that the ultimately nationalism is, is the strongest force in politics. Um, I think it I think it can even override, you know, economic issues and things like that. I mean, look at Russia Russia's currency is actually doing economy right now is doing a lot better than what than people expected. But I think, I mean, I, the expectation for most economists and 
and myself included. And, I, and, and honestly, long-term economic forecast for Russia is not clear. There's right now, there's like an argument in Russia, um, in like the Russian economic circles about the, the strength of the ruble. If, if, it's, if they need more inflation or they need less inflation, like do they want a stronger ruble or they want, you know, they want the currency to actually weaken and, and increase inflation because they don't know what the long-term effects are going to be. But I mean, the long-term effects in, in the Russian economy, um, you know, we, we still don't know what that's going to be. And I think they calculated heavy economic damage um but I, they were confident enough in the national the russian nationalism and uh that That's they were going to be able to um to deal with that so i mean that's my armchair assessment of the situation something else um, interesting that you pointed out that i want to chat about for maybe a couple minutes before we wrap up here and it's it's the the kind of two nationalisms of turkey that you were pointing out there's the there's the turk turkish like Turk nationalism, but there's also that Sunni part of it. And I find that kind of interesting. And, you know, that came up a lot when I was doing research on, on, you know, Turkey's name change and uh, Turkey potentially invading Syria. And I was hoping that maybe you can help me out with this one because I'm not super good at it. Um, Just about like Turkey's relationship to the Sunni, like Sunni Islam world. Because I know that domestically, at least, they are Sunni secular, right? So they're Sunnis, but they generally run their their country secular, right? But it seems like, and you can correct me if I'm if I've read into this wrong. It seems like abroad they're kind of into Sunni extremism. Um, it, one one point that you pointed out a little earlier was you know uh, extremist Salafist groups in 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 Idlib, you know that they're currently still there and they're kind of like the sell swords for Turkey. There's also like relationships that Turkey has with. Iran's Sunni, you know, uh, uh, militants as well. And that also has something to do, you know, with, with Syria as well. So I'm wondering from like your take, what's the deal with, with the, the Sunni aspect of, you know, of the nationalism of Turkey? Well, I don't, I don't, I mean, I really can't, I'm not an expert on this, so I can't speak that I mean, this is obviously incredibly complex when you're right. when you're talking about because we, we I mean we're even talking about I we're talking about like th- four different things we're talking about right. Turkey's relationship with um, um, Salafist rebels um, we're talking about Turkey's relationship with Iran Iran's hardliners and Turkey's relationship with Iran is 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 a strange relationship that is pretty hard to understand because you know they are kind of at opposing odds at some and some issues and, and then there's some things that they actually agree about like they both took on the same position the same policy in Libya but they have opposite policies in Syria and they kind of cooperate with some things and you know they're different brands of Islam you know Iran are, are they're 12 or Shias and and um, um, Turkey is is um, I don't know what the exact statistic is but is is I think it's like 90% or even may even be more um, Sunni and they seem to get along. I mean, th- there's no like discrimination based off that. You see more mm-hmm. of that kind of like hatred of Shia, like Shia Islam in like the Gulf states rather than in, in uh, Turkey. I think it's more of just like how 
a um, kind of like how like a Republican politician will kind of appeal to the evangelicist uh, right sure. uh, in like the in the country. I think it's mm-hmm. more about uh, appealing to to that demographic of like the conservative religious type uh, more than anything, or or um, or uh, his own kind of deep religious. Um, his personal beliefs. religious I, beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's more just like you know, this is a political base that we we have, and it's important to to uh, to satisfy the conservative religious political base. Um, so that's that's my general take on it. But maybe there's maybe there's more to it than than I'm saying. Well, m- maybe then we can shift to Iran specifically, because like like you said, I and I totally agree. The relationship between Turkey and Iran is incredibly complicated, and you know, maybe you can tell me a bit more about like the opposing um, viewpoints and stances uh, on the Syria subject between Turkey and Iran, because I'm also now seeing a lot of, you know, increase in like Israeli airstrikes on in Syria on uh, evidently Iran. I don't know. A lot of it's starting to confuse me a little bit. And I'm wondering how that plays into Turkey's goals of invading Syria. Are we just going to like restart giant hostilities in Syria again? Because it sounds like, it feels like it's starting to point in that direction again. Well, there's certainly people, I think, who want to restart hostilities in, in Syria. And and um, the relationship between, again, Iran and uh, Turkey is, is, very, is very complicated. It doesn't really make sense at times because they, I'm trying to find a good way to explain this, I said earlier they they cooperate on some things and then they don't cooperate on other things. Like both Turkey and Iran don't like Saudi Arabia. At the same time, basically the war in Libya that from Colonel Haftar was like a war of like Iranian and um, Turkish proxies versus like Gulf proxies. I like see. it's a really like Gulf state Saudi Arabia proxies. Like it's a weird a weird thing. But at the same time, they're both the Iran's proxy army in Syria and Turkey's proxy army in Syria are, are at war with each other. So it it's like a it's it's this. There's all these contradictions in 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 the overall policy. Um, they take different stances on different issues. So. It's weird. It's hard. It's really hard to explain like what these overall policies are or, or understand what these policies are. Um, I'll reference this Wall Street Journal article that came out a couple uh, just recently. And basically this article is about how the Israelis have been, um, you know, they've been bombing Syria uh, more than usual. They've been frequently bombing Syria for the past, I mean, for years at this point. And usually their um, pretext or, you know, what they say is like, hey, we're not bombing the Syrian Arab army, though a lot of times they, they kill people in the Syrian Arab army. The, the main reason why we're bombing Syria is because um, Iran is shipping weapons to Lebanon. Uh, they're, sw- they're shipping weapons to Hezbollah in Lebanon. So we're, we're just bombing Iranian uh, proxies who are delivering weapons. And recently they... Recently they... Um, bombed Damascus airport and they did like a lot of heavy damage in, in Damascus airport. Mm-hmm. Well, 
this Wall Street Journal article that came out yesterday, it, it reported that the United States approves these missions. The, they approve these Israeli, uh, uh, you know, missions to bomb uh, Syria. Ultimately, like the U.S. has to review these Israeli airstrikes before they happen. And, um, you know, they, they've approved basically, or most of them. I don't know how accurate that is if there's some that don't get approved or, or they're more secretive, but this is what the gist of the article is. But I guess the um, the complexity of this is that, so the U.S. still occupies parts of, of Syria. Right. But have not the same the parts of right? where they, they, yeah, they occupy the southeast, a place called Al-Tamf. And the reason why is because they are, you know, the reasoning on paper. The reasoning on paper is that they're fighting ISIS there, or they're making sure that they you know, they train local <laughs> partners or whatever to not uh, allow any ISIS re any kind of a rebirth of ISIS. Um, but at the same time. It's just super crowded in, Tur in in Syria right now. It's such a scary place because you have like so many different operators in there. You have U.S. forces in there. You have Turkey. You have all sorts of different militias. You have the Russians in there. The Russia just recently did an airstrike on um, on a on a. I think I'm not sure exactly. I haven't read too deep into what the airstrike was about, but the Russians recently told the u.s hey we're doing an airstrike in here uh just to let you know so the syrian situation is just we, we it would take a whole up we've done a past episodes on it where we ex explain um you know more in depth what's going on but long story short there's a huge proxy war in syria and it's kind of aimless at this point Hmm. That's that's my take. Well, I mean, honestly, a lot a lot of signs seem to to show that hostilities will pop up in Syria. You know, uh, we outlined Erdogan's stated goal of invading. You know, um, clearly, Iran is still fucking around in there. We're still fucking around in there. Russia's recently fucking around in there. Israel's definitely still fucking around in there. You know, so. That's all on a, on a backdrop of a major war in Europe. And, you know, it's, all, it's a weird, like, web of shit. It's like an episode of Game of Thrones. It's crazy. A lot of things going on right now. And it doesn't feel really great. I mean, this seems minor compared to what's going on in Taiwan, you know, it's don't even get me started it, on Taiwan. <laughs> it seems like that is like the, the, the scary, the next really scary place. So this just seems like some freak sideshow at this point, mainly because, you know, the ISIS, what, what made Syria put Syria on the map. And I think Syria would have gone underreported. ISIS put it on the map. Right. Like ISIS, the theatrics of ISIS and, and how brutal they were kind of made that like a global issue that, that the average person paid attention to. But if there was no ISIS, I don't think like the average American would 
would well i don't think the average american pays attention to syria anyway but it'd be less people who would who would be paying attention to it mm-hmm. um even though it's, it's you know one of the most destructive wars in the 21st century that that's ever happened that you know that war was hell um i mean the war is still ongoing it's not as going as intensively as it was in you know 2014 15 um but it it it, it was an awful war um now this seems like some kind of freak freak sideshow thing um, compared to you know the broader war in Europe right now where at this point Ukrainian officials have said that 200 to 500 Ukrainian soldiers are dying a day which is just crazy which is which yeah. is a really horrible number and then um, the potential for that to kind of replicate in Taiwan is is really scary um, if there was to be a war that broke out in, in Taiwan, if China invaded Taiwan, it would be global. I mean, it's just global war everywhere. Like, there's a war in Europe. There's war in the Middle East. There's war in Asia. Um, you know what they call global wars, right? <laughs> they call they call them world wars. That's right. And it seems it seems like it is the this if if there's still. Uh, strategic ambiguity. Ambigu- Why can't I say the ambiguity? Word? I told you just to go back. I'm horrible at pronouncing things. <laughs> ambiguity. Strategic ambiguity. Um, five years of speech therapy when I was younger, and I still can't pronounce uh, words. Um, if there's still this strategic ambiguity, um, then I mean, they're certainly taking the ambiguity out of it because it seems like the u.s policy is to protect taiwan but maybe not really maybe it's just maybe it's just getting their hopes up type of thing yeah um, they're ukraining them you they're you yeah they're ukraining them getting their hopes up <laughs> yeah um they're they're uh curting them they're still <laughs> dangling they're still dangling like eu membership in front of ukraine yeah like they're still dangling all these things, like oh, you know, you'll be part of the EU one day. Oh, oh. we'll solve all the epic economic problems after the war. Don't you worry, we're gonna just keep fighting. <laughs> just keep on fighting. It's it's scary because after with if 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 most of the Ukrainian army is annihilated in Donbass, then. What's gonna ha- what's gonna protect the rest of the country? Like what what like what what's keeping Russia from just marching to Lviv? So nothing. I, <laughs> I hope I, I I don't know. I pray every day that the war ends somehow. But you know those those that that has gone gone unanswered, unfortunately. And for that take, for that take that hoping the war ends. It's a controversial take, which is crazy in this climate. Um, yeah. If you look at our reviews, you'll know what I mean. For wanting <laughs> the war to end, you're a we prudent apologist. We must hate America. You must hate America because you want the war in Ukraine to end. Um, I'll yeah. leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Oh, yeah. you want to? Speaking of that, that's a good transition. We have yeah. an episode, an idea. So we're coming up on 250 soon. So our 250th episode. We're going to look at our reviews and um, I guess respond to them. We've never really, really responded to reviews before. 
Uh, it's no secret that we've been getting a lot of negative reviews, uh, mostly with the claims of us not being patriotic or um, being pro-Putin. So we will, we will address those reviews. Or maybe you can kind of clear your idea. You came up with the idea, so you explain it. For sure. I mean, it's it's. Um, I think that that it's interesting, and I'm I'm glad that people are reviewing us, um, both negative and positive. Uh, honestly, it helps us either way, uh, because the way that the algorithms work on, at least on Apple, uh, is that the more people talk about something, the hotter that particular podcast is. So, my ask is keep doing that, good or bad. Uh, review us. Tell us what you think. Try and be specific. Tell us what you think you disagree with. Uh, tell us what you would like for us to talk about. Uh, if you want us to talk about history more and you think that we suck on the Ukraine topic, cool. Tell us what you want to hear about. We generally listen to those things and we've created plenty of episodes around you know, content that has come from reviews. But what we'd like to do to kind of celebrate 250 episodes and also we're almost at 700 reviews is just kind of look at some because a lot of the the comments are hilarious and since we can't directly respond to reviews both positive or negative on apple we thought maybe we'll sit down and like read some of them and talk about some of the history and try to figure out where people's gripes are or try and figure out things that people really like i know there's lots and lots of you that listen to this show that still haven't uh you know still have not reviewed us so go ahead and do that uh and tell us what you think and we'll talk about it in a couple episodes all right so yes rate and review the podcast that is the number one way to support our show you can also join us on our patreon where you get access to our our slack account and uh that is a fun way to be part of the community be part of the commune of bro history the cult Um, (laughs) all right uh peace guys peace